Good morning, good afternoon. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us for another episode of American Christian. We are we haven't been on in a little while. I do apologize about that. I want to be a little more consistent there, but life life goes on. Yeah. So we are still addressing the article by a gentleman by the name of Daryl George. Um, you can find this article at trinityexamined.com. In the article is called John 1 1 in the Trinity. Um, so in this article, uh, Daryl attempts to refute the idea that this verse points to, to an eternal pre existence of Jesus or of the Word. Um, I was challenged to respond to this. I had a uh, person emailing me arguing over the doctrine of the Trinity. Anyone who's kept up on the podcast knows I've dealt a lot with this subject specifically. Um, it's a very important one. I mean, it really separates uh, traditional Christianity from the majority of the cult systems. Uh, so, I mean, it's good to address. And not only that, but a lot of uh, traditional Christians just don't have a good, solid understanding of the Trinity. And it's easy to understand why. I mean, when you're dealing with the nature of the infinite and then you try to explain it in the finite to another finite person uh it's easy to understand why it's difficult to understand there's nothing nothing in the world that's like our god um so when dealing with his nature it's very understandable that we would become confused and um yeah so but that is one of my major reasons for addressing the Trinity as much as I do. Um, and then when it comes to this, like I said, I was or I was challenged to respond uh, to the article by a gentleman who wanted, who was arguing over email with me about the doctrine um, and made the statement, he doesn't think I can respond to it. Of course, that's not necessarily why I'm responding to it. It doesn't make too much a difference to me if a complete stranger thinks I can't respond to it. But what I did notice through the article is uh, the arguments that are utilized are very typical arguments, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to uh, help show what those arguments are and explain how to come against them at this point for this verse, because this is a very a very key verse, at least for me, like once, like I, I packed down on this verse specifically on the prologue of John in general, uh, because once you have this verse down and you know the arguments against it, that will help you in many areas when evangelizing to cults, um, when you're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, or when you're dealing with Muslims or whatever it might be. This verse, not just this verse, but the entire prologue of John, when you address it to someone who's claiming to agree with the infallibility inspiration of Scripture, or even just the simple point that if God speaks, as say a Muslim would, that if God speaks, it's not going to, he's not going to go back on his word. Um, they have to turn around and completely contradict themselves, essentially. Um. So, but he brings up a lot of the argumentation that you're going to hear. So I thought that at that point it was good. Um, but not only that, but 
also reading through the article, it seems rather scholarly. It seems like he's making a point. Um, and the majority of people nowadays um, either don't know, and this isn't a knock on people, but either they don't know scripture, they don't know sound exegesis. I mean, when you deal with the majority of the Christian church nowadays, the pulpit isn't teaching solid exegesis. It's not going through and showing hermeneutic. It's showing interesting. Sorry about that, neighbors. <laughs> yeah, so from the pulpit, it's not being, you know, it's not a strong hermeneutic or exegesis being uh, shown. You know, we're not teaching people uh, nowadays to actually read their Bible and how to read their Bible appropriately in the historical context, in the context of the author. Um, but instead, it's usually a topical, you know, five points to make this area of your life better, three points to, you know, bring Jesus into this situation. And it's just very, very Sunday school at best. Not again, not to knock on anyone or anything like that. But uh point is is, you know, a lot of people they hear this kind of argumentation and don't know how to respond to it. And some of them will even think, yeah, that's good argumentation. I actually I work with a gentleman um who I was talking to. He's not a super religious guy, but he's been having meetings with uh the local LDS missionaries, they showed up to his door and they've set up uh, a few meetings with him. And he, I was talking to him about it and, you know, cause of course I have concern at that area. And he says, well, I was surprised cause they actually quote the Bible and it seems like they're actually pretty knowledgeable on the subject. And so I had, you know, I sat down with the guy, I had a conversation with him and uh, gave him some reading material and whatnot on Mormon doctrine and whatnot and listened to his point, you know, like what scripture was it that they quoted? And, you know, he quotes some of it and I had to explain context to him. He didn't really, you know, there's no understanding of it. Again, not to knock anyone specifically or anything like that, but uh I mean, people just don't know. And when the cults come and make statements and they use scripture out of context or they, you know, bring up like Daryl does, bring up the Greek language, but then misrepresent how it actually works. Um, it's going to. It's going to confuse people, and if you don't know how to argue it, it can be very dangerous. Um, so, so far we've gone through the article, we've seen him misquote authors, we've seen him uh, assert his own position numerous times in order to refute other interpretations. Um, he's abused the Greek language, he's used false and deceptive information, um, and not only that, but I mean, he's downright contradicted himself multiple times. For example, um, in the beginning of the article, when dealing with clause A, which would be, in the beginning was the word, he defines the beginning as um, the seven-day creation period. And then in the next section of the article, 
he turns around and he makes a statement that, no, that's not dealing with a seven-day creation period. It's dealing with um, a pre-creation uh, time frame or a, an, a specific point um, before creation. So he completely contradicts himself in order to um, come to the conclusion that he is, because what you see is the first time he does it, to make one conclusion and then he turns around and come you know makes the other assertion in order to make his assertion so he's bending it in order to make to come to his position um it's eisegesis at its finest um or i should say at best because it's even pretty weak eisegesis at that but it that's what it is it's not exegesis it's it's reading your beliefs into the scripture, not reading the scripture to get your belief. So let's continue on in the article and we'll look at it. Because of rules, quote, because of rules of Greek grammar, three possible endings are allowed for John 1 1 C. The clause, the second clause again is not disputed because the word God has a Greek direct article. Before the word God. But in the last clause, John also used the word God to describe Jesus. In the last clause, John made a distinction between the God, the Father, by omitting the article for Jesus. So Jesus is not the same God as the Father. This issue, or the issue at hand, is how to translate the last clause to transmit the inspired distinction between the Father, who is called the God, and Jesus, who is called no article God, end quote. So, once again, I'll quickly point to just the sentence structure. As I've made the statement before, I, I think he quickly typed this out, and I don't think he actually um, went back over it to look and see, like, is it any good at all? He says, John made a distinction between the God, the Father, by omitting the article for Jesus. Are the God and the Father, are they separate? Are they meant to be separate? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, just, again, you probably noticed it as I just read through it. It doesn't really make sense. It's It's odd. Because his whole position is that he's making the Father the only God, or Father God. That was the point. Um, but yet, he makes a separate distinction there. I, I don't know. Um, of course, I feel it's, or I'm sure that it's accidental. But again, I think that points to he didn't, it's not scholarly grade. He didn't actually look it over. He just typed it out quickly and printed it, sent it out. Um, then you come, he makes a statement, um, so Jesus is not the same God as his father. The issue at hand is how to translate the last clause. So, again, what we see is the presupposition, um, that this must be pointing to two separate distinct gods. And now he's going to use that to argue his position. Once again, this is circular reasoning, and it's completely unqualified because as he states there are three possible endings 
There's three possible ways of interpreting this. You could interpret it either definite, indefinite, or qualitative. And if you were to take the definite or the qualitative, it would not be pointing to a separate God. If you take the qualitative, then there would still only be the one God. He would have all the qualities of the one God. He would be by nature the one God. And if you took it by the definite interpretation, then you have modalism. You have only one God. So, like, what what exactly... You can't. What he's doing is he's trying to state his position in order to argue his position, and it doesn't work. Um, so to say, Jesus is not the same God as his Father. The issue at hand is how to translate the last clause. Well, you've already decided how you're going to translate it at this point, haven't you? That's going to play a major role in how you do. So no, it's not a statement of. Jesus is not the same God as the Father, so how do we translate it? No, the question at hand is, if Jesus is the same God as his Father, is that what John is trying to identify, or is he identifying two separate gods? Is he identifying the same God by quality? Is he identifying modalism? What is he saying? That is the question at hand, so no, it's circular reasoning put out once again. And, uh, even to come to that point to say Jesus is not the same God as the Father, and to use that argument, it doesn't work because even when you look at uh, verse 18, for example, the very end of the prologue, what do you see? No definite article is utilized for the Father, but yet you have even stronger notation when dealing with the word when he says, when he calls him the monogenes theos, or the unique God the one-of-its-kind God. In other words, he's the only God. Um, so monogenes, there's Greek lexicon, um, which, for those of you who don't know, Ther was a Unitarian. So, um, and he's actually quoted a lot when dealing with, like, for example, when you read Dr. Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults, he quotes Thayer's Greek lexicon a lot because it's very scholarly, very well done. He does not let his own presuppositions get in the way of how he describes things. Um, so he is a Unitarian, and when he comes to this, he uh, he makes the statement <coughs> that monogamous points towards a, uh, how is it he says, a one of its kind it means one of its kind. So if you were to do a literal translation, which is what the King James does, I think NASB does it as well. Um, literally, it would translate only begotten. Um, mono being only and genes begotten, created, whatever you might be. But the point is, is this is idiomatic. It's not pointing to a creation. It's not pointing to begotten. It's a point of it's a uniqueness. That's the point being stressed. So he's the unique God. Not only is he definite article God, but he is monogamous theos. He is the only God. He is the one of his kind. There is no other God like him. So very, very, it's good to point that out because when you are looking at the very context of the prologue of John, he doesn't leave room for that kind of interpretation, let alone when you go to the rest of uh, Scripture to find 
the Jewish monotheism that you do. Um, quote, Trinitarian theologians like to point out that based on rules of Greek grammar, the definite rendering is permitted when no direct article precedes a noun, but this is not enough. However, they do not consider the weight of two identical nouns in the sentence, one with the article for the father and one without it for the son. In the book, World Biblical Commentary, 2nd Edition, respected author George R. Beasley Murray wrote for this clause, Kai theos ein halagos. Theos, without the article, signifies less than ha theos. While Beasley Murray admits on one hand that the absence of the article makes Jesus less, the, less than the Father, he continues writing in the book and took this back, but it cannot be understood as a god, as though the Logos were a lesser god alongside the Supreme God. Because the late Beasley Murray was a Trinitarian, he took Jesus back to being equal, equally God. End quote. So I just read a big section there, sorry. Um, but you'll notice he makes the statement that it's because of, he is a Trinitarian that he took back this. But that's not because of a Trinitarian presupposition, but it's because the context doesn't allow for it. As it's been explained, context doesn't allow whether you're dealing with the immediate context of the prologue, whether you're dealing with the context of just the book of John, or as scripture as a whole. Uh, the Ju Jewish Christian monotheism does not allow for a lesser God alongside a supreme God. So, no, it can't be understood. Now, honestly, I would say, I, I don't know, I didn't take the time to uh, find that, while well, I did try and look for uh, this quotation, I tried to actually get a hold of it, but I just, uh, I don't have the money to spend on it, sorry about that. So I don't really know exactly how this quote is being used. I don't know if it's out of context. I don't know. Assuming that it's not, assuming that it is in context, I disagree with the statement anyhow. Um, yeah, the lack of a definite article can in some situations signify less than, but not in every situation. That's not a constant thing. Um, it's not just because there is no definite article doesn't mean uh, that it is therefore less than what it would be with a definite article. Um, and like I said, dealing with the context at hand, it doesn't allow for it. So no, it's not a tr Trinitarian presupposition. It's just simply that the context doesn't allow for it. So let's see, was there anything else to address right here? However, the context Nope. All right. So next quote. The late Be Beasley Murray recognized that the distinction between persons in Koine Greek can be made by the article. When one person has the article before their identity and another person shares the same identity without the article, the first person has greater significance. For example, the captain is greater than a captain. 
in a sentence when a contrast is made. This point is also made in the books Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. Wallace writes, the article is frequently used to distinguish one individual from another. Because God's word is inspired and John dropped the direct article, English interpretations should account for this exclusion, but doesn't, or but don't, is actually how he says it. Because God, God's word is inspired, and John dropped the direct article, English interpretations should account for this exclusion, but don't. If John wanted to also communicate a definite rendering for John 1.1, 1, 1, consistent with mainstream translation, he would have kept the article for Jesus, end quote. So I should point out, I don't know if I did, so I'll make the quote. Right now we're dealing with the definite interpretation of it, or he's attempting to deal with that. Um, so with that being said, let's see. So he's still pre-assuming that there's no qualitative interpretation or any other interpretation allowed, because to say the to make the difference between the captain and a captain, well, why not a co-captain? I mean, that would be a possibility, right? When you're dealing with a qualitative interpretation or however you might want to say. But identifying two persons as both holding... I mean, it would be identifying two persons as both holding the same authoritative title. Um, it would be completely completely possible, but it's not necessarily pointed out. But the problem with the captain argument in general is the possibility of two ontologically separate captains is possible, but the context is only allowed for one God. Um, you can look at Isaiah 44, you can look at John 118. Um, so in general, the captain argument, it's a straw man argument. It doesn't hold up. Um, not only that, but it assume, assumes um, distinguishing one individual from another must mean distinguishing one God from another while ignoring the possibility of a qualitative interpretation, which would distinguish one individual person from another within the one being of God. It doesn't. It doesn't really make sense, does it? Um, so once again, I mean, he quotes and he make, says that uh, Beasley Murray recognizes a distinction between persons in the Koine Greek. That doesn't mean a distinction between God, because, again, the qualitative position would say there are two separate persons between the one nature of God. So trying to use the persons in a matter of pointing to nature doesn't work. Not only that, but then he tries to argue that position as though um, whether he's arguing, he would still be arguing for uh, Beasley Murray's statement that's made um, that it or symbolizes less than God or as a separate ontological lesser God. And he tries to quote uh, Daniel Wallace's Greek grammar beyond the basics which says the article is frequently used to distinguish one individual from another. But again, even that quotation doesn't help him. All it does is make the statement, it distinguishes one individual from another. Not, it distinguishes 
one individual God from another. It still could be a person that's being separated. It could still be a separate, two separate substances being identified within the one essence, which would be the doctrine of the Trinity. That would be how the qualitative interpretation would work here. Um, of course, he's dealing with the definite interpretation, so that doesn't necessarily... Uh, yeah, I, he's dealing with a definite interpretation right now, but I mean, that's something that should still be addressed right here. Um, he's not really, at that point, he's not really addressing the definite interpretation. He's just making the statement of the indefinite interpretation, why he is addressing it, but he's doing it in the manner of uh, trying to address it. It doesn't doesn't make much sense. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, you see he's still making his assumption in order to come to his conclusion. It's still circular reasoning that he's using. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't really hold up when you actually look at it and you break it down. Um, so take a quick break and I will come right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back. So I'm just going to go on and keep working on this article. So I'm just going to continue right through here. Quote, the doctrine of the Trinity correctly teaches where to go. Sorry, one sec. The doctrine of the Trinity correctly teaches that Jesus is not the Father. In fact, the second clause, John made a distinction between Jesus and his Father. A distinction must be made between them to avoid the false doctrine of modalism, where one God wears different masks and sometimes appears as Jesus and other times as the Father, etc. Because Jesus is not the Father, a contradiction, and John made a clear distinction between them, this is another reason that the definite interpretation is incorrect for John 1.1c. So finally, a good argument, although sentence structure is still horrible here, um, but, I mean, he makes an actual argument against the definite interpretation now. And it's the very same argument that I would use. It's a good argument. It actually makes sense. Um, to take a definite interpretation would mean that it's the same God, same by nature, same by essence, same by person. But you can't have that because there's a distinction in person that's drawn. <clears throat> so Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. Therefore, a definite interpretation doesn't really fit here. Um, that makes sense. Again, I think that the sentence structure he uses is pretty odd when he uh, makes the statement, because Jesus is not the Father, and John made it a clear distinction between them. Um, like, I I don't know. I, I guess maybe it could be two separate points, but it seems like the same point to me. I don't know. Maybe that's just me being picky. That's a possibility, but it's not necessarily important. Right here, he actually makes an argument, finally against the definite interpretation instead of just using circular reasoning. Yes, a definite interpretation of this would point to a modalistic understanding, and it's not allowed by the context, immediate or any other context. <coughs> so from there, he goes on to identify the qualitative interpretation. And while dealing with it, it's a very short section, and... Uh, I'll read through the majority of it, but he actually makes no argument against the qualitative interpretation. 
Um, he presupposes it's wrong with no exegesis as to why. And that's basically his position. He basically makes the statement that he that it's that it can't be correct and then moves on. Um, he goes and he quotes a couple people who hold to the qualitative position, but doesn't um, doesn't have any back and forth with the dialogue, doesn't uh, make any arguments against it. He just simply quotes two people who do hold the qualitative interpretation, and that's it. Like, I mean, that that's the closest to an argument you get. But, so, I'll read the start of this portion. Quote, While the qualitative interpretation is allowed and does not contradict the Bible, does the context, two distinct beings together in the beginning, suggest that a qualitative ending is intended by the author? According to Greek grammar beyond the basics, a qualitative noun places the stress on quality, nature, or essence. It does not merely indicate membership in a class of which there are other members, such as an indefinite noun, nor does it stress individual identity, such as a definite noun. Jesus is not the Father. The omission of the article in the context does not appear to stress a distinction in quality, nature, or essence. While a qualitative interpretation is allowed, is non-contradictory, and is more accurate than a definite interpretation, in addition to the context not indicating that God should be understood as qualitative, a serious weakness is that John used the word God twice, and it's preferred to translate this word literally, indefinite a God, since there are other words available that were not used that mean deity or divinity. For example, Paul uses the word deity, Greek the theotes, for Jesus Christ in Colossians 2.9. End quote. Um, so once again, he states, two distinct beings. Once again, he's made the presupposition. He's made, as you notice as I read through that, there's no argument made against the qualitative interpretation. He's just simply said that even though it's allowed and it's non-contradictory and it's more accurate than a definite interpretation, um, it doesn't work. It's not a lot. We can't do it. That's the closest to an argument that you see there. It doesn't. So, but you see that he makes the statement that they're two distinct beings. He's once again presupposed the answer to come to the conclusion. This is circular reasoning. I don't know anyone who could read this and think this is scholarly. I, I, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, while the qualitative interpretation is allowed and does not contradict the Bible, does the context to distinct beings together in the beginning. So he's making the assertion that the context is two distinct beings together in the beginning. That's not the context. That is what we are trying to decide. The question at hand is whether we have two distinct beings, um, two distinct persons and two distinct beings, whether we have one being in the beginning 
or whether we have two distinct persons both possessing the same being or nature together in the beginning. Um, so it's, once again, it's very circular reasoning. Um, it's the subject of the question, so to pre-assume it doesn't, doesn't help. It doesn't, it doesn't actually argue your position. It's just making your statement repeatedly. Um, so notice how he repeated, notice how he repeated that he read. Let me figure out my wording. Notice repeatedly he's read his own interpretation into it in order to argue for it. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. So it would be like challenging the question, is abortion health care or murder? By saying, since when is health care murder? See, it doesn't actually work. And I've heard this, too, when discussing abortion with uh, pro-abortion or what they would say pro-choice, which is essentially pro-abortion. But... Um, when dealing, when having conversations with this, when dealing people on this subject, I've made the same statement. If we're asking, is abortion healthcare or murder? And they'll, and I've heard this statement made. Since when is healthcare murder? Healthcare isn't murder. Clearly, there's a distinction between healthcare and murder. There's a difference there. The question isn't, is healthcare murder? The question at hand is, is abortion murder or is it healthcare? You're pre-assuming that abortion would be health care in uh, order to make the statement that, no, it's not murder. But that's not the question at hand. It's the same thing. Is Jesus the same being as the Father, or is he separate in being? By answering that and saying, well, if the context says that they're two distinct beings, well, no, we're trying to decipher what is the context saying. Is the context identifying two separate beings, or is it identifying one being? Well, since it identifies two beings, no, it, it's circular reasoning. It doesn't work. It's very, very weak. Um, so it would be, yeah, so likewise asking if one being has two separate substances or persons fits the context of two beings it's deceptive. It doesn't work. The question is, if it is one being having one substance, one being having two substances, or two distinct beings with two distinct substances. So it's 100% deceiving. 100% deceiving. Um, after this portion, as I said, he cites two commentaries holding a qualitative position, but he offers no argument against it. Um, and then that's the end of his addressing the qualitative position. So notice um, also how he offered no argumentation. Once again, he offered no argumentation against the qualitative interpretation in the statement. Um, he quotes Wallace's uh, definition of the qualitative noun and then states that this is not a qualitative noun while offering no argument as to explaining why. Um, so after assuming this isn't possible without any exegesis given in defense of that position, he gives one point that is the closest thing to an argument found in the section. He says, 
a serious weakness is that John uses the word God twice. And it's preferred to translate this word literally, indefinite, a God. Um, since there are other words available that were not used to mean deity or divinity. This isn't a weakness. This is actually is a strength to the qualitative position, saying that he, by his very nature, was the one and only true God. Um, this strengthens our case because he holds the very quality of not only the some form of deity, but the very quality of the one and only true and eternal God. Do you see what I mean? If the qualitative interpretation is right, you know, you can make the argument, well, he could have used different forms of the term deity. Okay, yeah, he could have, but he didn't. So when addressing what he did use, that is a much stronger argument on the position of um, Jesus being the very same eternal God, isn't it? Rather than saying, oh, well, he had deity. Because the qualitative interpretation isn't pointing to a two separate distinct God. It's pointing to one, the one true God, represented by three separate persons. So this is actually very strong on that point. So, thanks. Um, yeah, the closest thing to an argument against the qualitative is actually intellectual suicide for him. It really is. But, uh, yeah. So. Now to the indefinite interpretation. The indefinite translation, quote, the indefinite translation takes into account the presence of the article for God, the Father, John 1, 1, B, and the omission of the article for Jesus in John 1, 1, C. It recognizes that the Father and the Son are two distinct gods and is consistent with how Jesus is presented in the Bible as subordinate to his Father. Okay. End quote. Even though it's completely inconsistent with scriptural monotheism as presented by Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, um, and also inconsistent not only with Jesus' claims of having equality with God in uh, John 17, but John's explanation of Jesus' claim with Jesus' claim of equality with God. John five seventeen through eighteen, John ten seven or ten thirty through thirty three, John seventeen five, the list goes on. John himself has made this statement, and other New Testament authors have offered the same understanding that Jesus was equal with God. Take for example Philippians two five through eight, Hebrews one, Colossians two nine. Um. Somehow it's consistent. Even though it's inconsistent with all of that, somehow it's consistent with Scripture. Uh, okay. Um, I guess I would like to see some... I would like to see some argumentation for that. Um, he tries to give some argumentation um, later when dealing with it. I'm not going to deal with it today. 
but I am going to deal with it. I actually just want to dig in a little bit deeper. He tries pointing to say like John 10 and a few other places, but it all falls apart when you actually look at it in its context. It does. Um, so I would argue that the qualitative interpretation of John 1 1 is even more supported with regard to the context being that Jesus, in fact, was not subordinate to his father, but rather he was equal with the father and willfully made himself subordinate to the father in a created form to carry out what they had together ordained from before the foundation of creation, or, yeah, from in eternity. In other words, the qualitative interpretation takes into account his separation in persons, the equality in nature, where the where he flat out contradicts immediately the far and immediate context. Let me re let me restate that again. Where he flat out contradicts the immediate and far context. That's what I meant to say. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, okay, so dealing with, say, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, for example, um, he was found in the very form of God, and yet didn't find equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this doesn't mean when it says a thing to be grasped, it's not talking about um, Jesus as though he doesn't have equality with God and he's reaching for it. No, the in the Greek, the underlying Greek would actually be the position that he had it, but it wasn't something he felt the need to hold on to. The term would point to holding on. That's the idea that's being pointed to when it says a thing to be grasped. It's a thing to hold on to. It's a point of he already has this and he's laying it aside. So he already has equality, according to Paul. He already has equality with God. He was found in the very form of God and had complete equality with God and laid it aside. When you look at John 17, 5, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. He had the same glory as the Father before the world began. That is, you, you can't say that he's not making a statement of equality. And it just, it doesn't work. The only thing that you can possibly say is, oh, well, the authors twisted his word to make it say, which is what, say, um, Muslims would say. But it doesn't work. And I've seen no credible evidence to that statement. It, yeah, it's, it's rather ridiculous. But uh, so we go on. Quote, the Apostle John included the article before God, the God, in 1-1-B to accentuate the identity of the Father as the one true God. He omitted the article for the word to articulate a distinction between deities. This distinction is in harmony with Old Testament Jewish monotheism. The Father Yahweh was and is the one and only absolute sense, God. Jewish monotheism recognizes the existence of other gods who were not the one true God, Yahweh. And then he gives the examples. Angels, 
from Psalms 8, 5, and Psalm 97, 7. He gives the example of Judges in Exodus 21, 6, 20, and 22, 8, and the identification of kings in uh, Psalms 45, 6, and 7. So, let's see here. Let's just look at some of those. So, Psalm 8, 5, in the NASB, he was made a little lower than God, compared to the Septuagint translation, where it translates the Greek term angelos in place of the Hebrew Elohim. So, Elohim doesn't point to God in every single context. It doesn't. Sometimes it points to angels, sometimes it points to judges, sometimes it points to kings, as he points out. So that's not actually a statement of saying God, it's a statement of saying angel. Wouldn't that be the proper understanding? I mean, we can, we can go through and we can address all of what he talks about. We can go to 97.7 and say, and show how in context it doesn't even seem to be referring to angels, it seems to be referring, at least my understanding, it seems to be that the Hebrew term Elohim is being applied to a false idol. Um, unless we're equating Jesus with a false god, I don't see how that argument sustains. We can look at uh, Psalm 45, 6-7, and see that throughout Psalm 45, the term king is Malek, and Elohim is used only three times, twice as being referred to God, the true God. And the, even the LXX makes this differentiation by translating Moloch as Basileos, Basileos, or king, and Elohim as Theos. So even the Septuagint makes that distinction. Um so the, the point is, is that, yeah, sometimes Elohim does point to God, the true God, but in other instances, it doesn't. Sometimes it points to um, beings, judges, kings, things having um, the appearance of godliness, we could say, so to speak. Um, angels would have a heavenly appearance. So in that point, yeah, it could be considered a face of God, I guess you could say. Um, you could look at judges and kings and look at their roles, and yeah, they're supposed to be representing God. Yeah, that's true, but he's not calling them God in that context. He's not calling them God. He's saying that they have appearance of God in some aspect, but not in every aspect. It's not saying that they are separate ontological gods, like actual true gods. No, that's not the point. Um, but you see that the term is used. Yeah. But the point is, um, to make the argument that that's what's being addressed here, that the Apostle John's inclusion of a definite article before Theos for identifying the Father, but no definite article for the Son, it doesn't actually hold up. Um, the distinction, to say that the distinction is in harmony with Old Testament Jewish monotheism doesn't make sense either, because what does monotheism mean? The term mono, one or only, and theos, God, one God, 
what you're saying is there are two distinct gods. It doesn't actually hold up. Unless the argument is that Jesus isn't being addressed as God here. He's being addressed as a king or as an angel or something else. But unfortunately, there's no Hebrew to say Elohim. It's strictly Greek, Theos. And in the context, the only Theos being described would be God himself. It doesn't work. Um, yeah, so these proof texts, as we address them, the Hebrew term Elohim, it can mean God. It could mean little g God or false gods. It could mean angels. It could mean heavenly beings such as judges or yeah it, it could be it could be a few things um however context explains that they are being referred to as such so a judge an angel a king or whatever is not being explained as a god but as a judge or an angel or a king or whatever it might be in the context when referring to a false god it's clearly not being referred to as another real God or even a good God. Um, however, for the Greek of John 1.1 1, 1, to use theos in both instances and not pointing to another term for deity shows John is intending, John intends as the John is intending to refer to the same king or theos um, or God in both examples and is strongly emphasized by verse 18, monogenes theos. He's clearly pointing to the theos that the word is, is the very unique one, the very unique God. So it doesn't, I'm failing to understand how the understanding of what Elohim means has anything to do with theos in this context. I really am. So, once again, quick break, and we will be right back. We will address... Well, I actually don't have a whole lot to address, so let's just, let's just continue. So, one more statement on this quote. To separate deities in this context is not acceptable, being that the word giving the context as explained in previous videos um, is as eternal as the father. This is by definition of monotheism, not allowed since you would then have multiple true gods, multiple eternal gods. That is polytheism by definition, not monotheism. It doesn't actually work. Um, so, yeah, the quote, let's read that one more time, make sure I'm not missing anything. The Apostle John includes the article before God, the God, in John 1.1b 1, 1 to accentuate the identity of the Father as the one true God. He omitted the article for the word to articulate a distinction between deities. This distinction is in harmony with Old Testament Jewish monotheism. The Father, Yahweh, was and is the only true and absolute 
sense God. Jewish monotheism recognizes the existence of other good gods who were not the one true God, Yahweh. So, yeah, I think that's all that there is to address on that quote. Um, once again, you see um, he's trying to make the argument, nope, it must be in order to uh, make his conclusion. So he's using circular reasoning once again. Um, he omits the article to the word to a dis uh, articulate a distinction between deities. So he's once again assuming his position to argue for his position. Very bad. Doesn't work. Doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, this distinction is in harmony with Old Testament Jewish monotheism. Once again, the very by very definition, this does not work. It is polytheism because you have two separate, distinct gods. Not only that, but Jesus being described as eternal in this aspect. How I was, as I've explained already, points to a separate ontologically eternal God, which would be polytheism, not monotheism. Doesn't actually work. Um, and Yep, gone through, explained how uh, Elohim does not actually mean in every single context God or deity. It's not pointing to them as being deity, but having appearance of deity. And that is not, um, it's not what's being addressed here. And I don't see any argumentation as to see why we should think it is. But, uh, so I'm going to end it off here. We're going to pick up in the next uh, episode with dealing more of his statements in the indefinite interpretation. Um, again, he goes through and he uses things like John 10 and uh, Psalm 86 to try and argue for the existence of other gods. Um, and we're just going to look at a few things, a couple red herrings, um, and the his explanation of why worshiping Jesus is not polytheism. Very, very interesting stuff. Hopefully, by the next video, I can actually, or by the next episode, I can actually close this off. And that would be great, wouldn't it? Because I'm ready to move on, honestly. I am. <laughs> but, anyway, so, thank you for joining me for another episode. Thanks for sticking with me through it. Hopefully, this is beneficial. Hopefully, this is helping you understand just a little bit more. And, yeah, so... Awesome. Have a good one. Bye.